All right, you guys, go ahead and get started. So we're on our second week of Joseph. This is a great story. Did you guys reread it? I mean, it's a really, really, really well-told story. So we had a lively conversation in the Tuesday night men's group about providence. There are, there are a couple of not-so-closet Presbyterians in there who want to talk about wanted to talk about providence and free will. And they, they gave me a run for my money. Um, all right, but before we get into that, so a couple of dates. So 6.30 tonight, Sanctuary, is Pat's concert. And I'm sure you all heard him. If you came in through the main entrance, you probably heard him rehearsing. It's going to be great. Um, the Mozart, it's going to be long. So get a snack before you come. <laughs> Starts 6.30. First half hour or so is stuff that was either written by Pat or near and dear to Pat. It's Hart um, and Bart uh, Gent is going to be playing for us. And then intermission, <laughs> and then the Mozart Requiem. And the Requiem's in Latin, but we're going to have the translation. And <laughs> Jason asked me to um, put a little theological context behind the Requiem because it's Catholic, and it's Requiem Mass. There's a fair amount of hellfire and brimstone in there. And he's like, you probably want to explain that, uh, you know, it's not a Methodist service exactly. It's... Uh, it's all very familiar to me, I can tell you that. Um, but anyway, so I'll introduce the Requiem, and that's about an hour. It's going to be phenomenal, but it's going to be great. Okay, and his fam- family here is here. Some of y'all heard me say that. So that's tonight. Next week, 10 a.m., one service in the sanctuary for Don. No modern worship. You are more than welcome to wear jeans and boots, absolutely. I, I wonder if he might even preach in boots. I don't think he's ever done that before, but he might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not sure, like, when he's been in a robe and stole, if he's ever had boots on. I don't know. I, I, wears, his wears his boots constantly. But I don't think he like, wore them on Sundays, do you? When he's preaching. Yeah, I, th- I feel like, I don't know. I think, it was, I think it's like a thing that he's going to be in, <clears throat> in boots. So that's next week. And then also next week is our, we're going to wrap up Genesis. And then the following uh, Sunday is Thanksgiving, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And then it's Thanksgiving weekend. It's the holidays. That's pretty busy. So... I'm going to do a Tuesday night Advent study that's open to everybody, in case you're interested in that. I'll be at 6.30 on Tuesdays during Advent, first three, first three Tuesdays of Advent. And then um, the fourth Tuesday of Advent is a blue Christmas service. Do you guys know what that is? So it's, so the, it's on December 21st, which is the longest night of the year. It's, traditionally, it's, a, it's a traditional service, um, especially for those who have lost loved ones, especially recently. I guess kind of a, you know, the holidays can be rough when you're grieving. And so um, Mike led us in that last year, and we're going to do it again this year. That's good. So it's for the four Tuesdays of Advent. That's what I'll be doing. And then beginning in January, we're going to do Luke. And that will start probably the second. I haven't finished the schedule yet, but probably beginning the second um, Sunday of, of January. And we're doing Luke because Luke is the lectionary gospel for next year. And so I'll be in, in Luke quite a bit, so I figured we'd just do a Bible study there. Okay, so we left off chapter 40, is that right? We didn't read the dreams of the two prisoners. <clears throat> Last week we had a fun discussion, well, it was fun for me, I hope it was fun for you, about uh, the whole concept of providence, which is the unseen hand of God in the world, you all see that? And its relationship with free will. So what, when it comes to the agency of the actors in our human drama, uh, what part is God, what part is us, 
does God ever override our free will, or is it really just a matter of us participating in what God's calling us to do? And the reason that's such a big question for Joseph is uh, the Joseph cycle is that it comes up quite a bit. And um, the relationship between what God intends something to be and how it turns out is actually not uncomplicated, right? I mean, we don't believe in God as a puppet master, and yet Joseph, like, uh, like how exactly does that work? Did, was, did God send Joseph to Egypt so that God's people could be uh, saved from the famine? That's what Joseph thinks, seems to. Is that just his way of rationalizing a terrible experience? Does God really work like that? Does God really get him sent into slavery and thrown into prison all for this greater purpose? Is that the way God acts? I don't know. It's complicated. So I think, like everything else, we have to come to our own conclusions. Um, but it's, it, it's, come, it's going to come up a lot this week and next. So let's start in chapter 40. Our goal is to get through 45 today. Uh, we will see how we do. <clears throat> all right. Sometime after this, the cupbearer, uh, so we, just, we left off last week with Joseph and the uh, royal official's wife, so, and he's in prison. So sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two chief officers, the, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he waited on them, and they continued with him for some time in custody. One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each with its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to make mention of me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this place. For in fact, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they, should, that, uh, that they should have put me in the dungeon. So I, I'm not here for any good reason. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked foods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered him, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. The baker's like, wait a minute. The other guy had a great dream. And hang you on a pole, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Poor Joseph. I mean, he, Joseph doesn't know anything but being brutally honest, does he? He doesn't nuance anything. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his cupbearing, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But the chief baker he hanged, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. It's going to happen later. Somebody else is going to forget Joseph, except the whole nation is going to suffer for that. So this whole notion of dreams is obviously an important recurring motif in Joseph, uh, the Joseph cycle. 
And at first, the dreams are interpreted by others, right? So Joseph has the dreams, but he doesn't actually interpret the dreams. He just tells his family the dreams, and they interpret for him, right? They're like offended because of what they assume the interpretation of the dream to be. Joseph says interpretation belongs to God, um, but in this case, it's through Joseph. And it turns out to be true. Uh, the author of this part of the, st uh, the story is not really interested in the, in the cupbearer or the baker. They're not really important to the story, other than to prove the fact that Joseph knows how to interpret dreams. The next part is the important part. Chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and there came up out of the Nile seven sleek and fat cows, and they grazed in the reed grass. Then seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and thin cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Then seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Pharaoh awoke, and it was a dream. In the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my faults today, two years ago. Once Pharaoh was angry with me, with his servants, and put me and the chief baker in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own meaning. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each according to his dream, as he interpreted it to us. So it turned out. It was, I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for God, and he was hurriedly brought out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can, who can interpret it. Excuse me, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered, Pharaoh. He said, it is not I. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So the coffee, I don't have a cough. So you remember this from last week, the Lord was with him. God favors Joseph in, in a unique way. And, you know, the eternal question for us is what, what the relationship is between Joseph's part as a participant and God's will, how the hand of God is at work. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, okay, so then he recounts his dream. And we're going to jump down to 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are the seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, as are the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind. There are seven years of famine. They are seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. After them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. The plenty will no longer be known in the land because of the famine that will follow, for it will be very grievous. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a man who is discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and lay up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for, good, for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to befall the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. 
Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone like this one in whom is the Spirit of God? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, and there is no one so discerning as, and wise as you, uh, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Removing his signet ring from his hand, Pharaoh put it on Joseph's hand. He arrayed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in the chariot as of his second in command, and they cried out in front of him, Bow the knee. Thus he set, over him, set him over all the land of Egypt. Okay, so I'm going to skip down. Uh, 46, Joseph was 30 years old. So it's 13 years after he was taken into Egypt when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Joseph went out, blah, blah, blah. 50, before the, two year, before the years of famine came, Joseph had two sons, blah, blah, blah. I don't think we need that. 53, the seven years of plenty that prevailed in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says it to you do. And since the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine became severe throughout the world. So as of right now in the story, who is acting? <laughs> if, if the two protagonists here are God and Joseph, who's doing what? But it matters. It matters how you understand that. Because I, I actually think you're saying two different things. And I agree with one of the things you're saying. <laughs> so, um, so this is really, like, this is an essential point. I'm glad you're bringing it up, Ann. So God creates nature. In nature, there are droughts. Does God send droughts? Or floods, or earthquakes, or hurricanes? Does God cause those things to happen? Like, who's the agent in, that, in, the, in the drought? Okay, yes, I would agree with that. So God is the creator of all, but did God send a drought to Egypt for seven years to punish Egypt? Or to draw Joseph's family to Egypt? Okay, he knew. Yes, 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 yes. Like, yes, this is so important because different Christian traditions interpret this differently. So God is omniscient. I think we all, I think we all agree. I mean, I think most people agree with that. That means God knows everything. So um, we talked about this last week. Somebody just mentioned it. So Kairos versus Kronos, or Kronos. God, uh, God's time is eternal. So God knows everything that's going to happen ever. God knows the number of our days before, we, before they unfold. Does that mean that God zaps us on the appointed day of our death? But if you believe significantly in the sovereignty of God, that's theological code for God kind of causes everything. So one strain of Christian theology would say, well, sure, God caused the drought. God's the creator of everything. And then a Wesleyan would say, John Wesley specifically, would say God knew it was going to happen because God is omniscient. God doesn't act in such a way that, that God does everything that happens in the universe. That's not the way God interacts with God's creation. God creates everything, creates us especially at the pinnacle of creation for a relationship with God, and then it is our relationship uh, that's the, the vehicle through which God intends to act in the world. So in this case, God, um, 
God allowed, God gave Joseph the knowledge to interpret the dream, and dream interpretation was a significant part of the culture in the ancient Near East. I mean, we, we probably view this a little differently now than they did back then, but certainly in, in Egypt, the culture in Egypt, there's all kinds of dream interpretation stories and everything else, so I mean, it's an important part of their culture. So God gave Joseph the ability to interpret that dream, but that's different than saying that God caused the drought so that the dream could be interpreted. Does that make sense? Joseph having the ability to interpret the dream is not the same thing as saying God caused what the dream is about. And that's not a minor point. I know that sounds a little, little like a little bit of a technicality, but it's actually not. Because if, if God is causing these things, then that affects how human beings are in a relationship with God. So is it imperfect that there are droughts? Um, that is part of the create of nature. Yeah. Yeah. He also created us. Incredibly imperfect. So, um, yeah. We're not in, I mean, one way to think about that is that we're not in Eden anymore, to kind of harken back to early Genesis. And the way that our authors of the Joseph text would have made sense of that is we could have had a world without drought, <laughs> but we chose something different. This gets back to the free will and providence thing. Um, however, whether you, whether you understand the story of the garden to be metaphorical or literal, uh, the, the point of that story is that humanity chooses something that's not in accordance with God's will. You could say that. Sure, you could make that argument. Absolutely. But I, what, I, what I'm saying is that just because God is the creator of nature, I mean, God indirectly, God creates the world that has these evils, natural evils in them. But that's not the same thing as saying God creates those evils. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I really do think that's the fundamental issue. Because if you, because, because we would say that um, an omnibenevolent God is another word, omni, an all good God wouldn't create evil. And that's just not God doesn't desire death and suffering for humanity. God's purpose for humanity from earlier in our Genesis study is shalom and unity. Well, it's hard to have peace if you're being plagued by seven years of drought that's entirely dependent on one random kid getting out of prison, or 30-year-old getting out of prison and um, interpreting your dream properly. All right, and then Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I, I'm just so that that's just a it's a theological term, a natural evil. But your point is like evil implies some kind of intent, right? I guess. Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. But it's just like a theological category. So if so, like Wesley divided the world. There's um, there's moral evil. There's natural evil. But people, I mean, I think we're all clear that weather patterns aren't don't inherently have some kind of menace in them, right? I mean, there's no intent behind a weather pattern. That's a fair point, but that's how it's frequently referred to. Cancer is kind of a, would be in that same category, but you don't have to understand it that way. Um, there's like systemic evil, that kind of thing. It's just a, it's just another category, but that is a fair point. Yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. That's a tricky one, right? Okay, so just for the the recording purposes. 
So the the so when we pray for God, when we pray to God for give me an example. So the fires in California. Yes. So what what is the prayer? Uh huh. Okay. So that's really interesting. So dear God, help. It's real. This is really such a good point. Okay, so intercession, how we understand God interacts with, with the world really does matter here. So, um, so you can either say, God, please, like you could say something very simple. God, please put out the fires. God could conceivably do that through rain, if that's the way God ordered the universe. Um, it could be, God, please strengthen the firefighters or please encourage people to take the right steps to do their part to prevent fires, or please be with those who have lost their homes or loved ones in the fire. Like the, All of those are terrific prayers, and what you expect to happen is pretty directly tied to your understanding of how God works in the world. I mean, like, if we knew a hurricane was bearing down on a city where we had a child, we would ask God to keep our child safe. I, I would. Okay, that's good. So there's a Russian proverb I'm sure I've told you before. It's pray to God, but keep rowing to shore. Right? I love that prayer because it's, it's both and. But if they couldn't, if they couldn't get out for whatever reason, roads were blocked or hurricane hit faster than expected or earthquake that was unpredictable or whatever, then we would want safety for our child. And here's what happens. If a good outcome that a faithful person fervently prays for does not happen, and our assumption is that God works in the world in a direct puppet master kind of way, that causes people to lose their faith. No, I know you don't, but I'm saying like there, like if you it depends how you understand the way God works in the world affects how you pray, and it affects how you respond when prayers don't turn out the way you want them to. And so, um, in Joseph's case, Joseph turns out just fine, <laughs> right? In the end, I mean, he goes through a trial, but he turns out okay in the end, and he's going to tell us that you didn't throw me in the pit, dear brother of mine. God intended this for good. You were just doing what God wanted you to do. I think God's like, uh, wait, excuse me. <laughs> um, no, that's not exactly what I meant, Joseph. <laughs> Thousand percent. God is with us. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and this is the, the thing. The Lord was with him. This is the way sermons get written for me, by the way. I mean, if you can see my notes. I mean, not ultimately. The manuscript's not this way, but... The Lord was with him. Yes, we all agree with that. And not only that, it's the basis of our theology in Christ. <laughs> Emmanuel means God is with us. The question is, in what way? And for a Wesleyan understanding of theology, it is entirely about us listening for God's will and then partnering with God, using our free will to align our lives with what God desires. And sometimes we do that more perfectly than others. There's this phrase in Methodist theology that we're all going on to perfection. 
we're going on to perfection. Very rarely do we get there. You know, we get these glimpses, which means uh, not that we don't make mistakes, it means perfect love of God and neighbor. My own view of this is that we get closest with our kids and grandkids. <laughs> right, that's where it's, I mean, it's easy, much easier for us to be kind of in perfect love with our kids and grandkids, if only momentarily, than it is with most other people. Um, but it's like this is like the whole point of Methodist theology is that we're supposed to use this free will to listen for the Holy Spirit as we're going on to perfection. There's lots of bad theology that says the hurricane hit you because you don't you don't act right or you didn't pray hard enough or this that and the other, right? That's none of that. That's not Methodist theology. Michelle? Yeah. Well. Yeah, so, right, so Job, the point is Job, um, Job proves the point, like the punchline of Job, and I can go ahead and tell this now because we're not going to get there for like 15 years or something, <laughs> on my current pace, uh, but the punchline of Job is that we don't get to know. There's a creator and there's a creature, and the creature doesn't get to know everything that the creator does. And uh, it overturns this theology that was prevalent in the Old Testament and frankly, still lurks, that if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And Job's like, uh, no. <laughs> and the author of Job is very clear that he was entirely upright and blameless. And still he gets zapped. He loses a bet between God and Satan. Not like bleh, Satan, but the God's prosecutor, Satan. Let's read some more. 42. So when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob now, going back to Jacob, so Joseph's dad. He said to his sons, why do you keep looking at one another? What do you, don't stop standing around. Go get some grain. I've heard he said that there's grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there so that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. So that's, you know, Benjamin and Joseph are actual brothers, right? The others are half-brothers. Uh, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel were among the other people who came to buy grain, for the famine had reached the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold, all the pe sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. We've seen that before. The sheaves, right? That was Joseph's original dream. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where'd you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. Although Joseph had recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. He said to them, you are spies, and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my lord, your servants have come here to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. But he said to them, no, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of a certain man in the land of Canaan. The youngest, however, is now with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It's just as I have said to you, you're spies. Here is how you should be tested. As Pharaoh lives, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Let one of you go and bring your brother, while the rest of you remain in prison, in order that your words may be tested, whether, you're, whether there is truth in you, or else, as, jo as Pharaoh lives, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in prison for three days. Third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are imprisoned. 
The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your younger brother, your youngest brother, to me. Thus your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they agreed to do so. They said to one another, Alas, we're paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. Then Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you? <laughs> I told you so. Not to wrong the boy, but you wouldn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, since he spoke with them through an interpreter. Uh, vengeance is a dish best served cold, as they say. <laughs> I'm going to read what Brueggemann has to say about this. So uh, this section, according to our, in, our uh, commentary, part, um, conversation partner, Brueggemann, this section presents to us a Joseph very different from the one we have previously encountered. In chapter 37, he's a naive and guileless boy. In chapters 39 to 41, he's a noble and effective man of integrity who is not intimidated by the royal woman, 39, by the royal officers in 40, not even Pharaoh himself in 41. But in 42 through 44, he is now a ruthless and calculating governor. He understands the potential of his enormous office and exploits his capacity fully. He not only manipulates the scene, but seems to relish his power to intimidate and threaten. That's fair, I think. <laughs> right? Because he could just say, ah, you guys, it's me. Bring dad, everything will be fine. And we'll, we'll get there. But he, he, uh, he exacts his pound of flesh. So verse 23. They did not know that Joseph understood. Okay, verse 24. He turned away from them and wept. Then he returned and spoke to them, and he picked out Simeon and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. They loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. When one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money at the top of the sack. He said to his brothers, My money's been put back. Here it is in my sack. At this they lost heart and turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? That God has done to us. Why y'all got to drag God into it? Right? I mean, that's not good theology. Not God. That's their brother who's getting back at them for throwing them in a pit, selling them off into slavery. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, uh, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to us and charged us with spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, we're not spies. Which blah, 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 blah. Okay, so that recaps the conversation. Verse 35. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each one's sack was his bag of money. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. And their father, Jacob, said to them, I am the one you have bereaved of children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has happened to me. <laughs> it's all about me, Jacob says. Then Reuben said to his father, You may kill my two sons. Let's see, what is this? That's not... Why does that have to be the deal? You may kill my two sons. Why did that enter your mind? If I do not bring, back, uh, bring him back to you, put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for, your brother, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If harm should come to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So, um, tell you what. Okay, so they go down with Benjamin. That's in 43. 44, Joseph keeps Benjamin. Let's pick it up in 44, 18. So we have some time to talk about it. 
Then Judah stepped up to him and said, O my Lord, let your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, so that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see me face to face, see my face no more. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother go um, uh, only if our youngest brother goes with us, we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless the youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm comes to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in sorrow to Sheol. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became surety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will bear the blame in the sight of my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. I bet. <laughs> then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. Like, do you think that's the way God works? <laughs> okay. So you think he's overestimating his importance? Well, that's the truth. <laughs> uh, you can get that plenty in the Bible, <laughs> if not those specific words. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, Romans eight twenty eight. There's a lot of ways you could interpret it. Uh, the way I like it, the way that makes the most sense to me is that God makes all things work together for good and it goes on for, uh, who are called according to his purpose God makes all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to his purpose I think the actual NRSV puts it this way that's true here's how the actual NRSV puts it and there's 
the, the manuscripts are not all in agreement on this. They're old manuscripts that word it a little bit differently. That's why you get these different interpretations. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Or in all things, God works together for good. This is your, to your point. So, have good things come out of the pandemic? I would argue, although it's hard in the middle of it, I would argue yes. Um, does that mean God caused the pandemic? Well, none of us would argue that, I don't think. I mean, no one in this room would argue that. There are Christians who would because of their understanding of the way God works in the world. But to say that, in, that somehow God can work in the ashes of tragedy to make something good happen is a very different um, understanding of how God works in the world than saying God caused this so that this good thing can happen. And this, this question, um, like I actually take issue with what Joseph is saying here. He is trying to understand his own misfortune in a way that makes sense for him. And the way that's comforting for him is to say, well, the God, God had to have done it. Like the only way that this makes any sense to me is that God, God uh, caused this thing to happen so that at this moment I could save my family and thus all of Israel. It is psychologically way easier than saying that, right? And so the, the truth, though, what is the truth? <laughs> um, so we, I mean, we've all, we've read the story. You guys have all read the story. We hear how the primary, like the, the hero of the story, we hear how he understands it. And now the challenge is for us to make sense of it in our own, um, in, in the context of our own theology. And this is like, this is the core work of biblical theology. Because there, if it's not this story, it's some other text in scripture that's going to butt up against what you normally believe about God. I mean, the, the canon is too expansive for that not to be the case. Pick a subject, pick something you believe more than anything else about God, and there's going to be some story in the canon that argues against that. I promise you. I actually, I don't have any problem with the virgin birth. Uh, I was thinking more about, um, like, an, an all-gracious, or, uh, let's say in Genesis. So, um, God is all good, God is all loving, God is gracious and forgiving, and God killed everyone on earth with a flood because he was just sick of us. Because we're all evil. Come on, God doesn't overreact that way. It's a story. Yes, yes, same here. This is also a story. And so, whether it's this story, or I'll push it even farther, a story about Jesus. And then, then we really get to meddling. Because we assume all the stuff in Je about Jesus is just, well, of course, that's all. I mean, yes, somebody had to have been there recording on papyrus everything he did and said. Like, that's, he's Jesus. But there's some stuff in the Gospels that we would, if, we, if out of context, if, someone told, if we didn't know it was in the, in the Gospels, and somebody said Jesus said or did this thing, there are a couple stories in there that would be like, no way, that's not the Jesus I know. So then the interpretive tools that we have, because we believe um, this is where we come back to the quadrilateral for Wesleyans. Our resources 
are, we begin with scripture for sure, it's primary, but we also have the tradition of the church, and we also have reason, and we also have experience. And what, where tradition comes in is our Methodist tradition, where we believe firmly in free will, and that we participate in God, with God, I mean, this whole conversation we've been having, here, here, the, the, the uh, hero of the story we're reading uh, interprets theology in a way that doesn't quite jive with what Wesleyans believe. So then, what do we do? Uh, do we reinterpret it? Do we let Joseph have his incorrect opinion? <laughs> or, better said, the author of this story have his incorrect opinion? And we go, we move on to other stuff that we are more comfortable with? Like, this is the wrestling match, to me. We could be wrong, for sure. Of course, of course, we absolutely could be wrong. And in fact, if, if, we, if we started all of our passionate assertions with the caveat, I could be wrong, imagine how much better our dialogue with everyone would be. <laughs> right? Right? I mean, because I, I'm certain we're wrong about some stuff, for sure. You gotta prove it. Yeah, you could be wrong if you prove it. I could be wrong, but yeah, you gotta show it to me. Show me the receipts. I really am wrong. So that's a really good question. This is a really so. Do I believe that in this concept of God's plan? So the the clarifying question I would ask is, what do you mean by that? When you say plan, do you mean uh, that God? Um. God's specific plan was that I would be Catholic first and then meet a Methodist girl and then sit in Arapahoe and hear a call and then go to Henrietta. Because <laughs> I would have liked clarifying some details about that. And then Sherman and then here, like all that. So that, is the plan that specific? Or is God's plan that uh, I am to be in a relationship with God and listen for God's will for my life and try to discern what the Spirit's leading me to do now. Like, I, I think, my point is that I think when we hear God's plan, like when I think of a plan, I think a very specific plan. You don't mean that. Or do you? I, I think God is loving. 100%. Just like would have desired plans for yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thousand percent. You are yes. You are making my point right now. Yes. Sure. You better sleep with one eye open, David. One hundred percent. Yeah. No. We're we're describing the exact. We're describing. We are describing the exact same thing. So God provides these, um, like in, in Wesleyan language, we would say there's provenient grace, and there are these moments where God's always wooing us, and God's desire, God's plan for us, you're, and I could not agree more with the comparison to our children, right? I have, absolutely have a plan for my boys. They're going to go to college, they're going to get jobs that they're passionate about, they're going to marry some nice Methodist girl and give me lots of grandbabies. In the Methodist church. No, I, I'm not that, quite that specific. Um, <laughs> but, but, that's my plan. 
how they, uh, what they, where they end up is entirely dependent upon their choices. And so I think there are some Christians who say God's plan, and this is where it all, the rubber always meets the road in tragedy, right? So a, a 17-year-old kid uh, is texting while they're driving, and they smash into the back of a semi. This is a scenario that happened in what, a previous church. Different tradition. The kid was in a different tradition. And at that child's funeral, I heard God's plan. God's plan was for that to happen. Well, not I, that. I, that's where I part company with this notion of the sovereignty of God and that God's plan in that way. Now, was God with that child all the way through? Was God waiting for that child on the other side? A thousand percent. But to think that God does that because that's the way God acts in the world. I think is actually harmful theology. And so every time I run up on, on something in Scripture that, like if you were just picking verses out of Scripture, which is a terrible way to read Scripture, and a way that a lot of people read Scripture, then you can say, see, this is, what, this, is how God, this is how God does. Well, okay. But there are 40,000 other verses <laughs> that paint a more comprehensive picture of the way God works in the world, and there are one or two that you could say, well, okay, sure. You can make that case for it, I suppose. Um, Joseph seems to have, in, in fairness to the author of this text. But that just doesn't make sense to me in the, in the way I understand God. My mother would have preferred that. <laughs> she would not have wanted the clergy thing. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, that's perfect. Yes, that's perfect. I really think, when I think of God's plan, Lorraine, to your, to, the, to your specific question, I think of it in, in general terms. And I, I think that Brueggemann, I really think Brueggemann is right on the money here, where God's plan is for the things that God has put all of these <laughs> markers on the road for us to pursue. And to the extent that we fall short of that, that is on us. And it doesn't mean that God had the plan wrong. It means that it's a, real, it's a real relationship and we really have free will. And God really is committed to that free will. That's kind of the core of uh, Wesleyan systematic theology. That if, we, if you truly believe in the grace of God, then... God's grace has to be big enough to include our right or our ability to make bad choices. Otherwise, it's not really a relationship. It was on Joseph's brothers what they did. They did it out of selfishness and jealousy. It had nothing to do with God, I don't think. But God sure did make all things work together for good. And in a very real way, as we'll read next week, redeems Israel again through the mistakes of humanity. I mean, gosh, that's the gospel, right? That despite our mistakes, despite our very human failings, God has a way to redeem it always. Ah, oh, that gives me goosebumps, actually.
Okay, well, tonight, again, uh, is Pat's concert. We started this morning. My, my, honestly, my voice is raspy because I sang Marching to Zion so loud three times. I love, love, love that song. Um, that's all we're, that's where we're all going to end up. So let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. Gracious God, we are grateful today for all the saints in our lives, everybody who poured into us that helped us get to this moment in a room with like-minded friends wrestling with challenging texts and studying your word and in that way showing our love for you and growing in our love for you as we leave this place today uh, we hold in prayer all the musicians who are going to pay tribute to pat messick the way his, the way he lived his life the impact that he had on so many people through the gift of music may that be a, a glorious celebration of a life well lived and we pray that you would bring us back next week for one last conversation about Genesis. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all. God bless you.